0: Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right, so we're super excited today because we have a very, very special episode, the first of three, in fact, uh, with nature photographer James Balog. So Lauren Lapuman and I had the opportunity to interview him at AGU's annual meeting in December, not so long ago, and we're really excited about it.
1: Yeah, I am. Well, I was very excited to meet James. Yes, it was. Yeah, he's totally an idol of mine, so...
0: Right. It was it was a fun experience. Uh, so we're just going to play part one of uh, the interview. We are very delighted today to have a special guest uh, that we're recording and hoping to put on the podcast later, we have uh, James Balog, he's a renowned uh, photographer known for, um, at least to me, for um, his documentary, Chasing Ice, and now um, just coming out soon, The Human Element. And so, James, thank you for being here today.
1: James, you've obviously had from an early age a great love of science and of nature, so what kind of, how did that evolve throughout your life, and how did you decide that you wanted to be a photographer?
2: Yeah, it's funny to me how all the pieces have kind of added up over time, but I was one of those kids who liked to climb in, climb trees and go camping, and I had a rock collection, I had a snake collection, I had a turtle collection, I had a leaf collection, and uh, just loved to generally mess around outside. My, my parents took us camping, I think, at the time initially, because... Uh, They didn't have much money to go to hotels, so we went camping a lot in Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont, and uh, I just loved the experience, and that added up to where I am today, basically. But in between, I got uh, fixated on the high mountains. I had a chance to go to an Outward Bound school course in Colorado, and I fell in love with the you know, the, the high ridges and the alpine wildflowers and the big sky. Mm-hmm. And when I was finishing my undergraduate education, I realized, you know, I think maybe I'd like to study some geology before I'm done with undergraduate so I can learn how these mountains work. So I immersed myself in geology that last year of undergraduate. I took, uh, I think, 14 courses, which was completely nuts. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't do very well in most of them, because, especially the chemistry and the, all the quantitative stuff. But the things I really loved, like physical geology, I did very mm-hmm. well, and I kind of memorized the entire book. And, uh, and that, in turn, led to grad school in geomorphology. However, when I was finishing graduate school, I realized I wasn't really meant... To do environmental impact statements the rest of my life that 's what I had pictured coming out of grad school uh, that I would do these these uh, these studies that were so common at the time i guess I guess they still do them, but but they were a fresh topic in the 70s mm-hmm. environmental impact studies. so I decided that a camera which I was quite avid about uh, working with and photographing would provide this wonderful vehicle for travel, for seeing the world, for expressing my interest in nature, and I kind of launched off into the camera direction, but I was always grounded in the natural sciences.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you remember what your first assignment was as a photographer?
2: The first time I actually got paid to make a picture was a Smithsonian Magazine story on avalanche control. And this was a strange uh, bit of serendipity. I had gotten an assignment as a writer to do a story on oil shale development in Colorado. This is 1978 or 79, I think. And I had to come to Washington to interview Senator Gary Hart. While I was here, I called Smithsonian Magazine and talked my way to this editor, Jack Wiley, who did a lot of the natural science stories. And I said, hey, I'm in town to do a story for German Geo, and uh, you know, I'd like to come by and uh, say hello. And I walked in, and uh, we sat down and had our social niceties, and he said, uh, uh, well, do you have any ideas for us? And I was shocked. I said, (laughs) I don't know. I didn't know you were supposed, when you got to be the high level editor, you better have some bright ideas. So I spouted out this idea about, avalanche control do you know that they try and control avalanches in the mountains of utah and he said no i never heard about that and I, so i told him what i knew because some of my climbing buddies were involved with that uh that work and he said boy that's fascinating well you write that up i think you'll get an assignment out of that wow and so i wrote it up i got the assignment and without having really built very much of a photographic career they said okay, here, we'll pay you X number of thousands of dollars, whatever it was. You go to Utah and you write the story and you shoot the story. And I wound up with an eight or 10-page photo essay and that was my first paid assignment.
0: Do you, really, do you think that springboarded you too? Like, do you look back on that ever and think about like, wow, this is, this is wild that this is how things happened?
2: It is completely nuts. It's insane. <laughs> it, it should never have happened that way, really. I mean, it's, mo- most people go through a long... Steep um, career development curve. You know, they go from small newspapers to bigger newspapers to the big color magazines and so on. Mm-hmm. But the, the, I think one of the key bits of energy and ammo that helped to pull me along was, on the one hand, my my true lifelong passion for the outdoors. I wasn't just a guy coming in with a camera, doing stories about something that was distant from him. And the other key point was my knowledge of the natural sciences, particularly earth sciences. It gave me a foundation in in these fields that most of my peers didn't have. In fact, at one point about maybe five or six years after that, I had drinks one night in New York with my editor at Time Magazine, Arnold Strapkin. He was the director of photography at Time. And I said, Arnold, I really feel kind of adrift. I don't feel like these New York photojournalist types. Here I'm out in Colorado, in the mountains, Do you think I ought to move to New York so you guys see me more? He said, no. Why are you thinking like that? <laughs> Absolutely not. You're the only guy out there, and we know you can do the natural subjects. And all these guys here in the city, they can do the press conferences, and they can go chase the president, and they can go chase the wars. But you're our guy in the West, and because of what you know how to do and what your interests are, you're, you're unique in our stable of photographers. So just you're okay. Just stay where you are
0: did your background in science like, obviously informed you, but then did that, um, did that ever affect like, your relationships with other photographers, because you were maybe getting gigs that they weren't, or is that just, you were just doing something completely different from them?
2: Uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, I tended to drift into friendships with people who were in this outdoor or adventurey or wildlife world. I wasn't really a wildlife photographer in the classical sense. But uh, many, of, uh, many of my interests came out of adventure sports. I was an avid technical rock climber, ice climber, uh, climbed big mountains in the wintertime, climbed uh, Denali in Alaska with another guy. Back in the day when that was a fairly radical thing to do because uh, people would go on big expeditions and it was just the two of us, you know? that was much edgier. So I had all that background in those sports. So when I would meet people in photography who the very small cadre of us who had that kind of background, we naturally gravitated together. But, you know, being a photographer is pretty much a maverick solo kind of a thing. At least back that kind of photography, back at that time in the 80s and 90s, you were largely on your own. You know, you've got your cameras, you might have one assistant, but you're just going out to explore the world. It's not like you're all hanging out in bars together at night, Mm -hmm. which is very, very different from, from people who go and cover conflicts. You know, they all tend to, stay in the same hotels in, in Baghdad or Beirut or Kabul or something, and, uh, and they hang around in the same bars at night and try and support each other, but not the kind of work I do. You know, you're off in a tent. You're off in a, in a little you know, dumpy cabin somewhere, and you do, do your thing alone.
1: Mm-hmm. Did they ever have an issue with you not having any formal photography training?
2: Uh, no, not at all. Didn't matter at all. One of my other uh, early breakthroughs was, uh, I can't remember how this happened exactly, but this writer, Mark Kindley and I, had this idea that we should do a story about a cancer treatment facility at Los Alamos National Laboratories in New Mexico. We had heard that they had this, this huge, weird, complex instrument ca- called the Cockcroft Walton Accelerator, and it would somehow take you know subnuclear particles and shoot them down this controlled beam and they were experimenting with how to use it to kill cancer cells in people's bodies. Wow. And I knew zero about lighting inside these sort of uh, uh, high-tech laboratories. And it was some crazy-looking stuff. I mean, it was really like science fiction, what, what this lab looked like. And I just kind of rented some lights at a local film production uh, uh, support facility in Denver, drove them down to Los Alamos and spent three weeks shooting this place and plugging wires in and trying to make it look cool. And again, that was for Smithsonian actually. Got a terrific layout from it. And the story was published and the same day it came out, the picture editor of the Time Life Science magazine Discover called me. And said, I have a story I want you to do. And I said, why are you calling me? She said, I just saw your story on Smithsonian. and If you can do that for them, I want you to do this story for me. Oh, wow. And that led to this big thing on radio telescopes in the Mojave Desert. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of kept adding up from there.
1: Yeah. So when you're out in the field or when you're out, you know, shooting in nature in mountains and these really dangerous places, how do you deal with those kind of uncertain lighting situations or you know what kind of equipment do you bring with you besides your camera to get that shot
2: well that's that's a point of enormous anxiety when you're planning <laughs> for these trips you know yeah we were in uh where was it it was a year and a half ago we were shooting in alaska it was almost two years ago we were shooting in alaska in the wintertime north of Fairbanks, we were trying to photograph these methane bubbles that were believed to be coming from the bottoms of these frozen lakes. Mm -hmm. And I had a whole film crew with me. And I told these guys, look, it's really, really going to be cold and miserable. You will barely be able to keep the cameras going. Don't burden yourselves with a lot of fancy Hollywood filmmaking stuff. I'm giving you an elliptical answer but believe me it'll make sense. <laughs> oh, I so guess, yeah. so keep it light, keep it simple cuz I've been through this, you know, when you're working in the cold the simpler the, the s- simple is better. These guys came with so much equipment from San Francisco and LA, we had to rent a special motel room, take all the beds and furniture out of it and use it as a staging area for all of these fancy motion control things and You know, it was piles and piles. What my guys brought to Fairbanks, they couldn't use any of it. They were crippled by too much gear. Mm -hmm. So the, the moral of this story is, I learned a long time ago, you keep it really, really, really simple. And at least in the cold. When it's not so cold, you can afford to bring more stuff. But I still try and keep things fairly simple. And today, I almost don't carry any lights at all because the digital cameras are so... The, the digital files uh, have such a tremendous range of, of ability to record different uh, degrees of brightness mm-hmm. that you can kind of fudge pictures pretty well without carrying a lot of lighting. In fact, a, young, a lot of young photographers don't even know how to use strobes or lights anymore because yeah. they're accustomed to the crutch of these enormously powerful digital files.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure a lot of young people don't remember darkroom processing either.
2: Or Kodachrome. (laughs) Uh, No, no, it's true. You know, when uh, I started out learning how to shoot on Kodachrome, Mm -hmm. and that's an incredibly unforgiving medium. You have to bring light into a lot of situations because the the dark areas of the picture will plug up and you can't see anything in them. But it taught a discipline. You know, you really had to know how to see light. And a lot of people working in in stills or video today don't know how to see light as well because they're accustomed to the digital files giving you this broad range and, and they don't
0: try and control the range as much as we used to have to do on Kodachrome. Do you have any advice for young nature photographers just starting out?
2: You have to learn how to winnow out the, the garbage and
0: let your, your, your nerve endings
2: and your soul be inspired by the great stuff because... Look, we we didn't learn how to see in the past five months or five years or 50 years. We know how to see and how to think because of what people have been doing for generations and millennia. You know, you go outside this building and you look at some of the more beautiful buildings in the next five blocks radiating out from this building. They weren't designed by by the architects in 1890 or, the, or Thomas Jefferson in you know, 1790 or 1800, the, the compositional uh, standards were invented by the Greeks, for God's sake, 2,500 years ago, you know? And we're, our, our aesthetics uh, come, are grounded on that, and we're always seeking to advance you know, and, and go beyond that, but you, you need to learn uh, the standards that are so powerful.
0: Alright, so that's all for this episode, but be sure to look out for two more coming out uh, later this week.